Right, good morning, everyone. This week, we are resuming our Connection Group Bible Studies, and I am excited that we are going to get to be back with our groups uh, beginning this week. If you have a phone, let me encourage you to go ahead and pull that out, and you can go to fresnochurch.com groups. That'll take you to a webpage on our site. It looks like this, if you can see my phone. Uh, it gives a little bit of information about groups. If you have a question about groups, there's a place on that page where you can shoot me an email. Uh, but then when you click register for a group, that's going to take you to a page that just literally lists out all of the different small groups that we have available. And I wanted to take just a quick moment before we got into the sermon this morning and just kind of highlight all of the different groups that we have available so you kind of know as you're perusing through there this morning uh, which group to look for and which group to sign up for. Uh, we have a group for married couples, or if you're a couple that's looking to get married, uh, we have a group led by Anthony and Jackie Castro called His Needs, Her Needs, and that'll be a really encouraging group. That'll meet Thursdays at the church at 7 o'clock over in the other building, or the other uh, suite, I guess you could say. Uh, we also have a group uh, led by Red and Debbie Kellerhalls. They're going to be working through Psalm 23. Uh, they're going to take several weeks and just look at one verse each week at Psalm 23, and also John chapter number 10 to see how Jesus is our good shepherd. And that group will meet Thursdays at 6 o'clock over in the kids' room. Uh, Gary and Joyce Izzard, right up here up front, they lead our seniors group. They're going to be going through the book of 1 John this semester. Uh, my wife and I lead a group. We're going to be going through the book of John. That's actually going to take us two semesters, because uh, you know the way I work through things. It takes a while. Uh, so we're actually going to take two semesters to go through the book of John. Uh, Lori Safford, who is with us online, is going to be taking a group of ladies through the book of Luke, and they meet over the phone, actually, so if you're like, ah, oh, I'm not quite comfortable jumping into a group yet, jump into that one, and uh, they meet over the phone, and it's great what they're able to do there. Uh, Hunter and Rachel, they lead our young adults, and they're going to be going through the book of Revelation. Now you say, ooh, that's got my attention, I'm not a young adult, sign up for it and jump into it, I know it'll be an encouraging to you, and uh, it'll get your energy up, too. Uh, Hunter's also leading the teenagers. Uh, they meet Thursdays at 6.30 over in the teen suite. They've been working through the book of Romans. And so let me encourage you, if you're a teenager, if you have teenagers in your home, to either sign up yourself or if you're a parent, sign your kids up for that group. And I know it'll be encouragement to them. And then uh, once a month, we're going to have a men's group and a ladies group that meets. Uh, Alfonso and Courtney Cruz, as well as Red Keller Halls, are going to be helping head those groups up. Uh, the men are be going to be going once a month through a book called The Death of Porn, how men of integrity can be build a world of nobility. It's a fantastic book. I know this group will encourage you if you're a man. So let me encourage you to jump into that group. They're going to meet the second Saturday of each month at 9 o'clock. And then Courtney is going to be leading a group called 12 Women of the Bible. It's a biographical study looking at 12 different women. And I know if you're a lady here, that'll encourage you. So let me encourage you ladies to sign up for that group. Uh, that group will meet uh, the first Saturday of every month here at the church at 9 o'clock. And of course, we're going to be continuing our uh, Wednesday evening prayer service at 6.30 here at the church. And so I'd encourage you, if your schedule allows, to also sign up for that. That's always a sweet time as we get together. We just worship the Lord, we sing some songs, and then we read through a chapter of, uh, of the Bible. Uh, no explanation, no expository, no preaching. We just read the scripture. And then we take 30, 40 minutes, and we just pray together as a church family. And I know that's encouraging to many, and I'd encourage you, if your schedule allows, to jump into that group as well. Well, this morning we are also uh, starting a brand new series of messages called Church Membership, as you can see on the screen behind me. Uh, this, throughout this series, we're going to be answering really three different questions about church membership. The first question we're going to answer is, what is church membership? 
and I'm going to do my best to answer that question in today's message. What does the Bible say about membership in the local church? Uh, the second question we're going to be answering is, what do we, as members of this church, what do we believe? And then we're going to take several weeks, and we're going to work through our church's statement of faith. That's just, these are the core beliefs that we hold to as a church family. Uh, that's not going to be an exhaustive doctrinal statement, uh, but it will be, uh, it will identify, I should say, these are our core beliefs based on the scripture that we hold to as a church family, and I know that'll encourage you. And then the third question we're going to answer this in this series is, how do we as church members live our lives? And what we're going to attempt to answer in that uh, series is, um, how do we as church members live? What am I agreeing to when I join this local church? And in those messages, we're going to be working through our membership covenant. It's also my hope that throughout this series, the material that we look at throughout the scripture can kind of form the material of what I'd like to call a new members class. So when somebody wants to come and join the church, they can, we can all be on the same page together. That's why we're kind of doing this as a message series. So we as a church can all get on the same page. And then as new people come in, they will also go through much of the same material in a new members class. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, let me encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter number 2. I'm going to read the entire chapter for us here in just a moment. Uh, this isn't the only passage of scripture that we're going to look at, though. We're not going to be predominantly in Ephesians chapter 2. There's just a few things I want to highlight in the chapter to kind of get us started this morning. Uh, this entire series is going to be really much more topical. And what that means is instead of working through one passage of scripture, we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages of scripture. Uh, this series is going to be much more academic in nature. So I hope you brought your Bible with you, and I also hope you had some good coffee this morning because um, we got a lot of content to work through. Uh, so this morning, though, the question we're going to answer is what is church membership? I'm going to read Ephesians chapter number two, and then we will pray and jump into our study this morning. The Bible says in Ephesians two, beginning in verse number one, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one close to you somewhere. Let me encourage you to grab that. Turn to Ephesians chapter number two. The Bible says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Verse number seven, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Verse number 11, so then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who were circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, verse number 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. And I know this sermon is going to be more academic than maybe what we're used to, Father, but I pray that you would still anoint your word. Even though this might be more academic, we are in no less need of your anointing. We still need your spirit to open our eyes so that we can understand your word. We still need your spirit to open us so that we cannot just have a mental understanding, but a heart that is drawn towards and lives that reflect what we hear in your word. And I pray that our church would help many become righteous trees planted by God to glorify you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, oftentimes Christianity is pictured as simply a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Christianity most definitely includes a personal relationship with Jesus. And how many of you are thankful that you personally can have a relationship with the creator of the universe? Amen. That's an amazing truth. But Christianity is not only a personal relationship with Jesus. As we just saw in Ephesians chapter 2, we're not just saved from our sin. We are saved into God's kingdom. We are reconciled to God and into God's people. Christianity is not merely a personal relationship with Jesus. It is that, but God is also saving us and creating us to be a new people. Let's revisit a couple of those key verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 14 through 16, we saw that Jesus is our peace, and he made both groups, circumcised, uncircumcised, Gentile, Jew, believer, unbeliever. When you get saved, you now become one. We are one in Christ. He made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made them no effect of the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Verse 19, so then, this is a glorious implication of the fact that we are now saved, the fact that we are now in Christ. Paul's going to give us this amazing implication. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. What Paul is doing is he's showing us here in Ephesians chapter 2 that one of the implications of being raised from death to life 
is that we are now a part of God's people. Pastor Mark Dever said, when we come to Christ, he folds us into a family, a family that has actual flesh and blood step on your toes, people. We become a child of God. When we become a child of God, we become part of God's people. The book of 1 Peter says this very well in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. So why has God set us apart? Why has God made us this new, holy, royal nation? So that you can proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, he says, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what Peter is helping us understand is the moment we received God's mercy and we were saved, we became part of God's people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. When we become a child of God, we become part of God's people. This is often called the family of God, the body of Christ, or the universal church. The universal church is the body of Christ and should very much be a part of every individual's Christian life. We saw this a few weeks ago, or we saw an expression of this a few weeks ago when we ended the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians 4.22, Paul says, All the saints send you greeting, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And we saw how that word for greet is more than just a, Hey, how you doing? It's this hospitable recognition. It's I'm drawing you near to me. It's I'm seeing you and I'm believing in you. you know, I'm standing with you and I'm supporting you. It signifies camaraderie. And what's amazing about this is this is Christians in Rome who are now standing with and recognizing and being in a spirit of unity, as Ephesians says, with Christians in Philippi. So here we have Christians who are in different parts of the known world standing together, experiencing unity. They're saying we are in this together. That's what's special about the universal church. It reminds us that we have brothers and sisters all around the world. And when our brothers or sisters are facing persecution or they're going through difficulties, we stand with them, we support them, we encourage them, we pray for them because we are all part of the body together. We are all the body of Christ. We are all the church. Another example of this is in 1 Peter. Many of the books in the New Testament are written to specific local churches. So the context of those local churches is that local church. And then the commands in those books is fleshed out within the parameters of the local church. But the book of 1 Peter wasn't written to one local church. Peter 1.1 1, 1 says that Peter, the book of 1 Peter was written to Christians living as exiles dispersed in Pontia and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. So he's writing to all these Christians in an entire region. So 1 Peter wasn't written to one local church like Philippi was, like the book of Philippians was. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, Peter says, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now when we read that, we just kind of assume our local context. Okay, I need to be hospitable to the people in our church, and that's true. But think about the context and who Paul is writing to. Here you have Christians who are dispersed and fleeing persecution. Many of them are having to flee their homes. And Peter tells these Christians who are all fleeing from their homes, who are scattered because of persecution, to be hospitable to one another. What he's saying is, welcome these refugees into your homes, because they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. Even though you may not know them, welcome them. That's the beauty of being a part of the universal church. It reminds us that no matter where we are or what we are facing, we have a family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. 
And I really believe that the more we see the beauty of the universal church, the big C church, as we'll sometimes say, the entire family of God, the more we see the beauty of that, the more we get a passion for things like missions. Because our focus grows from what, just, what God is doing in just our location. And we begin to see what God is doing around the world through different little bodies of Christ. Our focus grows from what just God is doing in our location, and we can see what God is doing around the world, and we can co-labor with God in other fellowships of believers in all locations. We're going to see this in a moment in the book of Acts. You see this throughout the New Testament. Now, the very first church that begins to take shape in Scripture is the church at Jerusalem. We see its beginnings in Acts. Jesus is laying the foundation for it in the Gospels, but we really see it taking shape in Acts chapter number 2. Because that was the only local church at that point in the book of Acts. There's really no difference between universal and local because it's, it's the only local. <laughs> so it's the only church. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he's preaching at the Feast of Pentecost. And as he's preaching at this feast, as he's preaching at this religious celebration, he stands up and he preaches the message. And the Bible says in Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized and that day there were about 3,000 people added to them. Could you imagine? You get up at the Fresno Fair, you preach the gospel, and 3,000 people get saved. And then they get baptized. And then they're saying, I want to be a part of your church. <laughs> what an amazing service that would have been. So in Acts chapter 1, this church is about 120 people, the Bible tells us. Now in Acts chapter number 2, the church grows to over 3,000. Then in a few verses later, we see this early church beginning to take shape, the, the pastor in me can't get over it. How long would it have taken to baptize 3,000 people? I have no idea. How would that have worked, right? Like all 120 are in this water, baptizing, bapt okay, you just got baptized, now you go baptize these people? I don't know. That would have been a fun thing to behold, though. Uh, but in the next few verses, we see this early church beginning to take shape. Acts 2, 42. All these brand new converts, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. So as this new church is beginning to take shape, people are getting saved, and they're becoming a part of this church after they are saved. In Acts chapter number 8, we see Philip. He goes and he leads an Ethiopian official to Christ. And now the gospel go, then goes to Africa, church history tells us. Then you have Gentiles getting saved in the book of Acts. Then persecution starts ramping up. Persecution comes, and Christians are being scattered from Jerusalem, and Acts chapter number 11, we see the church at Antioch get started as a result. So then the church at Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas was one of the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. And so Barnabas goes to Antioch, and the Bible tells us in Acts 11 that he stayed there for over a year. And a large number of people were saved and were added now to the local church at Antioch. Why would the church at Jerusalem, in the middle of persecution, Send one of their most well-known and well-beloved leaders to this other brand-new church. Because they recognized, the local church at Jerusalem recognized that the church of Antioch was a part of the universal church. 
they recognized, yes, we're two different local churches, but we are all the church. And there was this love and appreciation and care. Then, of course, Paul and Barnabas are sent out from the church, and they go on their missionary journeys, and they begin planting more and more local churches. We've seen some of those pop up as we study the book of Philippians. And as more local churches are getting started, what we begin to see happening is the functional expression of the universal church is not only, but is largely fleshed out in our local churches. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's going to give us a good demonstration of this. I want to read verses 12 and 13. And then I'm going to jump to verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into how many bodies? One. We're baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. What I love about this verse and these other verses that we've looked at, is it shows us that when we get saved, God makes us a new people. It doesn't matter how society wants to divide us. When we're saved, we are one people. Doesn't good theology solve a lot of problems? <laughs> so what Paul is doing, because Paul is tying being part of the body back to being baptized in the spirit, which happens at salvation, we know he's not talking about the local church here in these verses in 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about the universal church. You were baptized into one body, the body of Christ. And so, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm not going to trust it. right here we go can you hear me now cool and so because paul is tying being part of this body back to salvation we know he's talking about the universal church he's not talking specifically about the church of corinth yet he's saying we are all as believers we are part of one body we're part of the universal church as a side note this is why we require members to be saved and baptized before they become a member of the local church you can't be part of the local if you're not part of the universal does that make sense when we are saved, Paul says, we are baptized by the Spirit into one body. Water baptism pictures and affirms and declares the Spirit baptism. It pictures and declares and affirms your salvation. Paul then, in verses 14 through 26, fleshes out what this local church looks like or what the universal church looks like. He says, if the whole body were the eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were the ear, how would you see? And so God has given the universal church many different gifts, and he's given it a lot of diversity so that it can be a functional representation of the body of Christ. But then in verse 27, he brings us home to the local church at Corinth. Now, verse 27 in the Christian Standard Translations, which is what we use to preach here, says you, now you, church at Corinth, you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. But a more literal translation of verse 27, like the NASB says, now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. You see, in the Greek in verse 27, there's no the in verse 27. So that tells us Paul isn't talking about the church, he's talking about a church. And that's why he says, you, church at Corinth, you are Christ's body. You are Christ's body. And so what he does is he takes what's true of the big C church and he says, this should be a functional reality. This should be expressed 
in the universal, in the local church. Not only, but mainly and predominantly what's true of the big C church, the unity, the camaraderie, the diversity. It's not only expressed in the local church, but it mainly gets expressed through the local church. We also get a picture of this in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, a few chapters back, verses 14 through 17. Paul said, so then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? And Okay, he's talking about communion now. The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one body. Now we know he's, this body he's referring to is a local church because they're all taking communion together. But this also helps us understand why we don't limit communion to only our church members of this local church. Because all believers are the part of the body. So if you are in local proximity to us, if you're here locally with us, you can be a part of communion with us because we are all the body of Christ. The local church is meant to be the functional representation of the universal church. Another great quote from Pastor Mark Dever says, Membership in a local church is not an antiquated, outdated, unnecessary add-on to true membership in the universal church. Membership in a local church is intended to be a testimony to our membership in the universal church. So oftentimes people, they'll pit the universal church against the local church. They'll say, well, I'm a member of the universal church, so I don't really need to go to church. I don't need to be doing my life with the body of believers. But that's not what we see throughout scripture. And then on the other side, you'll have people that are saying, well, there's no such thing as the universal church. It's just all the local church. But the truth is the, uh, the Bible never really pits those two against each other. In fact, I would argue that what we see in Scripture is the more we stand in awe of what God is doing in the big C church, the more zealous we become for our local church. Membership in the universal church can't remain this abstract idea or concept because God has set us apart so that we can declare his glory. When it's real, it shows up in real flesh and blood ways in the people in your life. Now, before we flesh out what membership in our local church looks like, I believe it'd be helpful to give a definition of the church. If somebody were to come up and ask you, say, what is the church? What would you say? Yeah, some good answers. So let me give, I, I, you'll have to bear with me. This is a long definition because I try to be as thorough as possible. So here's the definition. The local church is a group of baptized believers who gather as representatives of God's kingdom on earth to declare his glory through proclaiming the word. Observing the ordinances, prioritizing prayer, seeking consistent spiritual fellowship for mutual accountability and encouragement as we display God's love and holiness, using the gifts of the Spirit to support each other and evangelize the lost locally and globally. <laughs> yeah, right? That's a lot. I'll, I'll read it one more time. The local church is a group of baptized believers who gather as representatives of God's kingdom on earth to declare his glory. How do we declare his glory? Through the proclaiming of the word, what we do on Sunday mornings. Through observing the ordinances. Through prioritizing prayer. Seeking consistent spiritual fellowship for mutual accountability and encouragement as we display God's love and God's holiness. Using the gifts of the spirit to support each other and evangelize the lost here locally and around the world. Becoming a member of a local church is, an, is you officially saying in an official capacity, I want to be a part of that. That's what membership in a local church is. 
That's the vision God has given us throughout the New Testament for the church. Sign me up. Jonathan Lehman, in his excellent book, Rediscovering Church, says, Church membership is how we formally recognize and commit to one another as believers. It's a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. See, where do you get that in Scripture? Hebrews 10, 23, 24, and 25. Let us hold fast unto the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Church membership is saying, I am willing to submit to this local body of believers, and I'm inviting them into my life, asking them to keep me accountable for following Jesus. Church membership is also you saying, I am willing to be a part of other members' lives so that I can do the same thing for them, so that I can encourage and I can help and I can keep them accountable as they follow Jesus. Church membership is how we take responsibility for each other's walk with Christ. This is why gathering together is so important. It allows us to sit under the preaching of the word of God together. It allows us to praise God together. It allows us to pray together. It allows us the opportunity for our lives to intersect. Groups are another uh, method that we use to help make this a functional reality in our lives. Part of being the church is gathering. The Greek word ekklesia means assembly. In the common use, it means a gathering of citizens called out of their homes into some public space or an assembly. Now, it makes a lot of sense that Jesus would use a word defined that way as he's describing the church in the book of Matthew, because remember, we're citizens of heaven. And so as citizens, we leave our homes and we come together to assemble. That's what the definition of the church is. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, or excuse me, eleven eight. No, eleven eighteen. yeah, I said it right the first time. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, Paul is offering a rebuke to the church at Corinth over the divisions that they have. He says, you're supposed to be one in Christ, but you're dividing yourself among all these lines. And notice how he phrases this rebuke. He says, when you come together as a church, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So physically gathering together is intrinsic to part of being a local church. Gathering allows us to encourage one another. Paul told for, uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, but if I should be delayed, I have written you, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Paul is telling Timothy that there's a certain way the local church is to conduct itself as a part of the larger universal church. The large universal church is a pillar and ground of truth. So Paul tells Timothy, this is how you're supposed to help your local church conduct themselves. The reason God gives the local church elders is to proclaim the word, to model the word, and to equip the saints to follow the word. By the way, that's why local churches need more than one, because <laughs> you need more than one example to follow. We all do. Now consider with me all the commands given to Christians in the New Testament that are largely given in the context of a local church. Here are just a few. Be of the same mind as one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32. Seek the good of one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Love one another, serve one another, be subject to one another, bear the burdens of one another, comfort one another. Becoming a member of a local church is a way 
to say, to officially say, we're going to help each other follow Jesus because we can't obey these commands by ourselves. You can't serve one another by yourself. You can sing all by myself, by yourself. And if you sing like me, you probably should. <laughs> but you can't comfort one another by yourself. You can't love one another by yourself. And so we need a local body of believers who we can functionally flesh out what this looks like together. When people ask if church membership is in the Bible, sometimes we get the ideas of like Costco membership in our minds, and obviously that's not in Scripture. But the idea of God separating a group of people for his glory is all over the entire Bible. God has always marked off his people so that they can display his glory. Again, Paul gives a great uh, picture of this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, if you want to flip a few pages over to there. says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. Okay, membership needs to be believers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? It's a rhetorical question. There is none. Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul calls us the temple of the living God and calls us to be separate from the world so that we can provide a witness to the world. This is another reason for saved membership. I read these verses earlier, but I'll read them again. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 are such a phenomenal picture of this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, we know he's talking about the universal church, but the local church is meant to be the picture of that in our community. God has set us apart for him. And the unique way he calls us to live as a new people proclaims the glory of God. It puts on display the beauty and the worth of following Jesus. It puts on display why being a follower of Jesus Christ is, is amazing. Why it's worth the hard decisions sometimes. It puts that on display for all the world to see. God wants us to be distinct so that we can offer a compelling witness to the world. Now, there's also some things in Scripture that we can observe from the early church that help us inform uh, the way we do church membership. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, we'll unpack that chapter in a few minutes, but in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Matthew 18, both Jesus and Paul talk about removing someone from fellowship. You can't remove a person who wasn't officially a part to begin with. In Acts chapter 2, the early church clearly knew how many people were being added to them. You fast forward to Acts chapter number 6, we see that certain widows were not getting the help or the care that they needed from their local church. Acts 6 verse 1. In those days, as the, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews, basically Greek believers, against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So here we can see that the church was growing, and they knew who their widows were. They knew that some of them were not getting their needs met. They weren't getting the care that they needed. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16, there's a lengthy list of criteria for which widows get the official support of the church. 
Now, obviously, in the New Testament, they didn't have planning center, right? I'm so thankful for planning center. <laughs> they didn't have that. But clearly, they had some type of administration that allowed them to properly care for their members and identify when that care wasn't happening. Church membership is an assumed reality throughout the New Testament, even though the language is different. Now, it's also worth bringing up that all of what we have looked at so far implies that we are regularly involved in each other's lives. Remember in Acts 2, they were getting together every day. All of this implies that they were involved in each other's lives. Our groups are kicking off today, and that's a great way to start intentionally living this way. But what we see th throughout the New Testament goes so far above snacks and a 30-minute Bible study for 45 minutes in the middle of the week. There's this intentionality of I am committing my life to you, you're committing your life to me, and we're together. One of the best ways to really know the people in your church is to have them sit around your dining room table. I am more and more becoming a firm believer in that. You just get together, you sit, and you talk. You get to know one another. Regularly be involved in the people in your life's church. And this is vital as we look at another reason for church membership. Why church membership is so important. Church membership is vitally important because Christ has given the local church the authority to confront sin in that local church. This is what we call church discipline. Now, I understand when we talk about church discipline, it sounds awkward, it sounds harsh, but I hope as we look at it in Scripture this morning, we'll see it's really a gift of grace and an act of love. Church discipline starts with private correction. By giving the church the authority to confront sin, Jesus expects his people to be committed to one another to the point that we can hold each other accountable in our local church. You know each other so well that when you see some sin in their life, you can go to that brother and say, hey, brother, I've seen this. I've noticed this. So in this sense, church discipline should be happening kind of regularly. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I need help in this? <laughs> I can't do this by myself. I need brothers and sisters who see my blind spots who can help me better follow Jesus. Turn in your Bible to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. I want to read some of these verses that Jesus says. This is a shorter passage on church discipline, but it gives us the whole scope. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, this would be true of sisters as well, if your sister sins against you, go tell him or her, his fault between you and him alone. So if you see your brother and they're struggling with something, you go and you talk to him about it. But it's just you and him at this point. You go and you talk to your brother. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. You've won him back to following Jesus in that area of his life. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. So now you get more people involved. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. I had a friend a few years ago. He's sitting in here this morning. He called me out on how my pride was keeping me from being authentic in certain areas of my life. That's the church correcting my sin. And I'm so thankful for that. Now, given a period of time, if a person who is confronted by sin, Jesus kind of packs this all into three verses, but obviously we're giving each other time, right? because change doesn't happen in a moment. Given a period of time, if the person who has been confronted doesn't repent or work at changing by the grace of God, Jesus gives us the next few steps to follow. Take it to a few more witnesses. The reason for this is 
the sin needs to be verifiable. This isn't us just willy-nilly going around calling out things that aren't even real. <laughs> there, the, the, it might be that if you go and call out your brother on something, you're wrong in calling him out. And so if he's not changing, maybe you were wrong in the first place. That's why it says get a few more witnesses involved so that by the mouth of a few witnesses, everything can be established. So that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. This needs to be real and verifiable. But if that person, after they have been given chance after chance to repent and to change, to access the grace of God that's available towards them in Christ Jesus and bring their lives into alignment with who they are in Christ, if they're not doing that, the Bible says take it to the church. Now, it doesn't say to what extent of the church to bring it to. Obviously, this would include probably bringing it towards the church leaders, bringing it towards more people. But we see if that doesn't even work, Jesus says, let him be like a Gentile or a tax collector, basically an unbeliever. If we've taken all these steps and a person still refuses to let go of their sin, we have to break fellowship. Now, what does that mean? It means treat them like an unbeliever. It means that their local church can no longer publicly affirm their profession of faith. We don't know. We're not the Holy Spirit. But he has told us, based on what we see in their life, there may come a moment when you can say, look, we don't know, but we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. So we have to break fellowship with you. It means that your fellowship is limited with that person to calls of repentance. It's not punishment. It's not retribution. It's not like an Amish shunning. What it's meant to do is push that person towards repentance. It's supposed to be a wake-up call. Like, man, my entire church cannot even affirm that I am a believer. There's some things I need to sort out in my life. It also protects the witness of a church. Remember, we saw grace frees us from sin. I'm so thankful for our revival messages, how Brother Van Gelgen brought that out in so many amazing ways. Grace frees us from our sin. God has saved us and set us apart as a church so that we can demonstrate the beauty of living for God. Unsin unrepentant sin is the opposite of grace. It hinders that witness. Because we can no longer say, man, we're the set-apart people who are living in holiness to declare the beauty and worth of following God. And so Jesus says, break fellowship. Treat them like an unbeliever. Because if you have an unbeliever in your midst, then you're not really set apart for the glory of God. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. I referenced this chapter earlier. Now we're just going to walk through the whole chapter. It's a short one, so don't worry. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is going to flesh this out kind of on the tail end of it. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says in verse 1, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. He's like, guys, unbelievers know this is wrong. He says what it is. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Paul's like, I could go talk to some unsaved people and they're going to know, uh, that's wrong. So at this point, this sin in the church of Corinth was an established fact. The church knew this was going on. Paul is calling it out. Because the church hasn't dealt with it. Paul goes on. And you're arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? This type of sin should break our hearts. Church discipline is not this proud, 
I'm right and you're wrong. I'm holier than thou. So you're not a part of the club anymore. Paul says it should fill us with grief. And in that grief, we have, grief, we have to remove from your congregation the one who did this, Paul asks. Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. As the one who is present with you in this way, it's another allusion to the universal church, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, so when you get together, when you gather as a church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be with you in spirit and in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And this is the key right here. So that his spirit, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, at first, I know that seems harsh and that seems intense. But the way Paul ends that sentence tells us that the purpose of this is actually for the good of that individual. It's the church saying, look, we've tried and we've tried and we've tried. We can no longer affirm your profession of faith. We can no longer publicly get behind you and say, yeah, you're a believer. And hopefully this will serve as a wake-up call. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of flesh. It's like, okay, you've tried. We know sin is destructive. We know sin destroys. And we have warned you and warned you and warned you. We've tried to help and help and help. Now, because you won't let us, we just have to let you hit bottom and hope that when you get there, you find Jesus. The church can no longer publicly affirm this person's salvation, and hopefully that serves as a wake-up call. This shows us that church discipline and love are not at odds from one another. But that discipline actually flows from love. Remember Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves? This is part of how he does that. Now, to be sure, what God calls love does not jive with what our culture calls love. Our culture says love is equal to an acceptance of nearly every kind of self-expression. But that's not biblical love. God says love does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth. And then over and over and over again, he defines what that looks like in his word. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in truth. Let's continue on with 1 Corinthians 5. Look at verse number 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Get this, as indeed you are. This is like Paul, as a father to this church, coming along saying, Guys, you're a holy nation. Act like it, please. <laughs> Clean out the sin so that you can live in accordance with who Christ has made you to be. You're a holy people, church at Corinth. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Part of saying you can no longer be in fellowship with us and treating this person like an unbeliever means we can't do communion with you. Because when we do communion, we declare the Lord's death. We say we are believers and we're remembering our forgiveness. We're remembering his sacrifice for us. And if we can't publicly affirm your salvation, you can't take communion with us. He goes on, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I do not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. Paul's saying, I'm not talking about unsafe people. You need to associate with them because they need to see the light of Jesus. You need to go to those unsafe people 
who are sexually immoral, but they're of this world, they're greedy, they're swindlers, you need to go to them with the rescuing gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's their only hope. Paul's saying, I'm not saying don't associate or fellowship with those people. He says, but actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister of Christ and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Can't be a member of the church and a pirate at the same time. Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. For what business is that what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Paul is showing us that church discipline protects the functional purity and holiness of a church. Christ has made us a new people. Christ has redeemed us from our sin, nailing it to the cross, Colossians says. What a beautiful, amazing truth that we sing about, that we glory in, we revel in it, because it's so amazing. But Paul also says what that means is you cannot allow unchecked sin in your lives, because that doesn't reflect the spiritual reality of who you are in Christ, and that actually hurts your witness as a people who have been made new and holy. Now, he also says we don't judge outsiders. We don't judge the unsafe people. God's going to do that at that last day. At the great white throne judgment. Our job is to take the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus towards those people. But he does say in the form of a question, don't you judge those who are inside? God has given the local church the authority to confront sin. Now, given the intense nature of this last step in church discipline, Scripture tells us the type of sins that allow for this. Okay? We're not going to church discipline a guy because he's a know-it-all and talks too much. <laughs> he tells us, 1 Corinthians 5.11, Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be your brother or sister and is sexually immoral. Now, there's a lot of sins that fall underneath that category, but he gives us that broad category, sexually immoral or greedy an idolater, or verbally abusive, or a drunkard or a swindler. So we're not going to church discipline a husband for eating too much ice cream despite his wife's gentle disapproval. <laughs> but if a husband is verbally abusive towards his wife, or if he abandons his wife, we should and we will. God hasn't given us the authority to judge those outside the church, but he has given us the authority, all of us the authority to confront sin in the church. This is why church membership is so important. Church membership allows you to be a part of this safeguard against sin that keeps you from shipwrecking your life. I know this sounds intense, but really it's an expression of love. Remember, sin is going to destroy you. The book of James says when it's finished, it brings death. That's not hyperbole. That's not James exaggerating to prove a point so we're like oh okay well I don't want no he's he's telling us what's real what is and what church discipline does it's just this it's this expression of love that keeps us from shipwrecking our lives from destroying from allowing sin to destroy us because I love my kids I exercise my authority as their dad and I correct them and I discipline them when they sin because I want what's best for them I told one of my kids last night, look, you're not in trouble because I want to make your life miserable. 
Daddy loves you, and I want what's best for you. So when you sin like this, I'm going to correct you because I don't want you to ruin your life. This isn't good for you. Church discipline done, done well ensures that our church is a safe place for confession and repentance. Because our brother can go to us, and there's time and there's space where we can say, you know what, brother, you're right. And there's multiple steps that ensure that we take so that we can safeguard our lives. Church discipline does well, done well, ensures that our church is a safe place for confession. It's a safe place for repentance, but it's not a safe place for unchecked wickedness. A church with a biblically correct and healthy view of church discipline becomes an environment that makes it easier for sin to be confessed with and dealt with when, for lack of a better phrase, the sins are still small before they morph into something bigger. What gift of grace is that? God's like, I love you so much, I'm going to give you this whole system that's supposed to take place in the church so that you have these safeguards in your life that are going to help you and keep you from falling into sin that will ruin you and destroy you. This is an act of grace that God has given us through the church. And when there is an environment of regular confession and holding each other accountable in the spirit of love and grace, Galatians 6, People are given the chance to make things right. When the first steps of church discipline are done well, the last steps are a rare occurrence. Because <clears throat> most of it gets resolved when your brother goes to you. Most of it gets resolved when there's just a few brothers who love you and you say, hey, brother, I'm sensing this. So what is church membership? Church membership is how we formally recognize and commit to one another as believers. Church membership is how we formally recognize and commit to one another as believers. The local church is a beautiful thing. There's so much that this message didn't even begin to cover. <laughs> books upon books have been written about the beauty of the local church. I read a great one this week. It's called Rediscover Church. I've got 12 copies of it at guest services. If you want to read a copy, go grab one after the service. They're there for free. But I'm also not naive. I know local churches often fall short of this vision. This holy set of our people that declare the beauty of God. Wow, that's amazing. That's a great vision. But often we fall short. Ours falls short of that. A person might expect me to say all this because, well, you're the pastor and that's what you're supposed to say. The truth is, I'm saying this, yes, as a pastor. As a pastor of the Fresno Church. But I'm also saying it as a person who's experienced hurt in a local church. I'm not issuing a blanket endorsement for every local church out there. I'm not issuing a blanket endorsement for all churches or condoning the misuse of power and authority that sadly happens far too often in churches. But I've also experienced the beauty of this local church. It was in this church that I found an older mentor who had gone through similar circumstances with his father as I had. And he walked me through that pain that I was enduring and he came alongside me and showed me for the first time in my life what it meant to relate to God as my father. That happened in this church. It was through this church that I discovered an authentic community, friends who I could lean on, friends who would just listen to me, friends who I could be with and say nothing at all. Anthony cut my hair this week. It was the most quiet 35 minutes of my life, and I loved it. <laughs> After I left, I said, man, thanks for the silence. That was nice. And he said, I thought that was what you needed, brother. You understand your introvert pastor. Thank you. Uh, 
but it's also a group of friends and people who I could say anything with. And they would patiently in love and in grace be there with me. It was in this church that gave me a safe space and supported me as I went through grief and trauma counseling. You helped me unpack my pain and biblically equipped me to process and spiritually heal as I tried to move forward in my life. It was spending time in God's word with my small group when I was too tired or angry to feed myself. It was with you around your coffee table and around my coffee table that I began to understand what real grace is. Sure, it's messy sometimes. I often say very stupid things. <laughs> Occasionally, you guys do too. Imperfectly growing with imperfect people is messy. And honestly, it's not always what I want, but it is what I need. And it's what we all need. In some ways, we've got our work cut out for us as a church. There's some things that we're like, man, we got to set our house in order. This series is one of the first steps towards that. Like I said at the beginning, I'm praying that this, uh, this series can go on to be what we help people who want to join our church. This is the material that they can go through so that they can understand. This is what it means to be a member of a local church. We're trying to be a visible representation of the universal church, of the beauty of this new created people. We want to represent that here in our little corner of Fresno. In some ways, this series is one of the first steps. And it's my prayer that it will give many of us a fresh start as we seek to do that. At the end of the series, I'm going to ask all of us who are currently members to kind of recommit. Hey, I'm recommitting. I'm in this thing. I'm a member of this local church. I'm praying that many of us who haven't joined yet, I'm praying that as we get through this series, you'll say, you know what? This is a body that I want to commit to. This is a local body that I want to commit to. So here's my challenge for today. Show up. Remember, you are the body of Christ. You are essential, and the church is essential for you. Let's pray. I want to pray through Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. These verses are how Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and I want to pray them over us as a church family this morning. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Lord, I pray that you would grant us, the Fresno Church, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner being through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we, the Fresno Church, would be rooted and firmly established in love and may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Lord, I pray that we would be able to comprehend with the universal church, the big C church, all of our saints and brothers and sisters around the world, I pray that we, the Fresno Church, would be able to comprehend with all of them what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love. I pray that we would know how your love surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That sounds impossible. This prayer even says it's beyond our comprehension. <laughs> but Paul goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us.
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified here in the Fresno Church. In Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.